Welcome to a very special episode of Chess Feels. We are joined by the legendary women's grandmaster, Jennifer Shahade. Jennifer is a chess champion, poker player, maybe poker champion too, author, and podcaster, among many other slashes. We don't need to explain who Jen is to our audience. Come on. I'm so sorry for mansplaining. Julia, why don't you take over the intro? Queen of chess. <laughs> Jennifer Shahade is here with us today. Hi, Jen. Hello. Thank you guys for having me. It's so exciting. We're so excited as well and a little bit starstruck. Ooh, just where I want people. <laughs> when we all got on the Zoom, I started by saying, I have butterflies. Well, it's because our guests are usually not particularly distinguished. No, I don't believe that. How are you going to say that about sweet, sweet Gopal Menon? Easily. Yeah, or Nate. Or Nate. Yeah. Wait, which one was Nate? <laughs> Just kidding, Nate. I love you. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I had the biggest butterflies in one of my most memorable games in Brazil. It was my first international competition. I think it was around Christmas time and almost everybody else had rejected their invitation. It was the girl under 18 championship. And I was only 15, but there was no girl in that window between 16 and 18 that was like over whatever, 1900 at the time who wanted to play. So even though I was like, I think I might've been like 1700, 1800, I got invited to play in this world youth championship as the official US representative. Oh yeah. And the first round, it was in Brazil in this small-ish town, Guaguapava, and I had such horrible butterflies. I didn't think I was going to be able to hold my spoon down in the game, and I played so well. That's the best. What happened? What was the outcome? Well, I was obviously in the bottom half of the field, but I had won my first five games. And at some point, they looked at my games and realized that they should play positional chess against me. <laughs> there was like a rest day. And then oh I, started, I started to go downhill, but I beat a lot of really strong players in that tournament, including another legend of female chess, international master Martha Fierro. She was somebody I always looked up to, and I, I won against her in that event. And yeah, it all started with those butterflies, that much I remember. I love that. When you were telling that story, Jen, I briefly was thinking about how my first year in college, one of the hardest classes I've ever taken was an orgo advanced chemistry class. And I was so nervous before the final exam. I had really bad butterflies and I felt like I was going to throw up. And then I did throw up and oh. I did not do well on that test. So when you were like, yeah, I did really well. I was like, oh, amazing. I didn't know that that could be the outcome. That's awesome. <laughs> I have uh, the most nervous I ever was to play a game of chess was when I was paired against one of my high school teammates in a tournament and he would always beat me in practice. And I was so oh. nervous and I ended up castling queenside by moving king E8 to B8 and rook to C8. And I went on to have to correct that and then lost the game anyway. So that's my butterfly story. So I'm glad that someone has a good nervous story among us. JJ, why are we so embarrassing? We should have told cool stories. I'm secretly proud of that. I was 1600 and castling incorrectly. I'm proud. Well, I think this is important. It's like data oriented analysis. You can't just listen to that and, and come to the conclusion that butterflies are good. We're one out of three here. <laughs> it means it's something that you care about. So in that sense. Not all butterflies. Not all butterflies. One, one. Yeah. Are you obsessed with chess, but also kind of fun at parties? Do you keep your opening prep on your bedside table right next to your feelings journal? Welcome to the Chess Feels podcast. The only chess podcast dedicated yeah. to the social and psychological aspects of this game we know and love. And hate. 
Tune in every week to join me, professional chess teacher and amateur feelings haver, JJ Lang. And me, professional therapist and amateur checkmate finder, Julia Rios. As we dive into our shared love for the game and attempt to answer the most burning question for every chess obsessor. Why are we like this? Yeah. Well, jumping right in, Julia, you wanted to start with the hard-hitting questions. I just feel like this is a question that is the kind of thing that we normally would save for the end of the interview, but I'm just so curious because I didn't know that you knew this person, but someone said to ask you to make sure you talk about stories with Ben Johnson, and I can't oh, yeah. wait. I want to start yes, with that. Yes. <laughs> we were on the same high school chess team, and he was obviously really good friends with my brother as they're only two years apart. Ben and I are four years apart, so we only okay. like intersected for one year of high school, but we obviously went on a lot of chess trips together, and I have to say that... I am one of these people, I don't know, on a scale from one to 10, when you have like a plane to catch or a train to catch, like how nitty are you? Um, that's a poker term, but like how likely are you to like actually make the plane or the train? I am like probably a one, one being really nitty. Like I never really miss mom. Like I'm always so early, yes. hours early, right? The two times I remember in my uh, high school career missing trains and planes, I can remember two. And both of them were with Ben Johnson. I was about to say, you better say that they were both Ben's fault. <laughs> it was Well, I, I can't remember whose fault it was, but I'm like thinking like... It was Ben's fault. I missed two. And one, we got on the wrong train. And it was just so sad looking at the correct train roll by. We were just sitting there like, wouldn't it be nice to be on that train? And the other one, I think this was back when there were like no rules about planes. I must have been like 12 and he must have been 16 or something. And... We were both on the same plane back to Philadelphia and like they so over they oversold. And I guess we were also probably late. And <laughs> they were just like, screw these teenagers. You're waiting. So yes, that's that. I, I am a huge airport nit, but apparently when Ben Johnson is involved. <laughs> There's actually a book I read by a mathematician, philosopher, like writes pop books that are fantastic, Jordan Ellenberg. And he talks about like this optimization and travel. And the idea is that if you never miss the train or the plane, you're not optimizing because, mm. you know, you're getting there ridiculously early and, and you're missing out on like precious time with your loved ones, right? I feel so strongly about this. My parents are the kind of people who like to go to the airport three hours early. I can't understand it and I won't and I won't cater to it. Like if you're traveling with me, we're going to go 55 minutes before the flight leaves like a normal person. So Julia and I are not going to be traveling. Together. <laughs> <laughs> I would change for you. Jennifer. Yeah, we could have a chess lesson at the airport. It would be totally worth it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I would definitely maximize that time. On the optimization idea, I think that you could make the same argument for how if you never get caught out of book in your opening prep, then you haven't optimized your opening prep. Yeah. So maybe that's what I'll tell myself. It's like, no, if I was prepared for this, then I would have wasted so much time preparing <laughs> for other things. And that's why I'm caught out of book every game. Oh, I love it. You can make that argument about any mistake you make. If you, if you never lose on time, you're not mm. thinking enough. If you never blunder, you're, you know, what will be the one for if you never blunder? You're, uh, you're wasting too much time double checking. 
Yeah, exactly. There you go. So yeah, that that's a good one, actually. I think I was a bit like that. I, I actually I, I double checked a lot, but then I got into time pressure, so I blundered because of time pressure. But that's the thing; you need to make it even more and more specific. So when I blundered, it was almost always because I was in time pressure. I never blundered not in time pressure, and therein lie the problem. I was double checking too much before I got into time pressure because I was paranoid about making a mistake. But then, of course, you make a mistake because you're in time pressure. You, you you didn't get it out of your system early. Yeah, exactly. There you go. I should have just blundered. Would that kind of fall under the category of this term you use, Jen, of nitty? Can you tell us more about that? Oh, yeah. Nitty is a poker word for being too careful. Is it like uptight? Yes. A little uptight and careful. Like you don't want to get your money in bad. So, you know, you make sure that you have a, a good hand, but it can also apply to things occasionally like slang. It can apply to, you know, that you don't tip well or that you don't want to like splurge. It can apply to more than poker. Although honestly, a lot of people who are tight in poker are very generous and splurge a lot in real life. A lot of times it's the opposite. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. That sometimes your style is similar to your personality, but a lot of times it's also the complete opposite because in poker in particular, people aren't expecting it. So sometimes that can also be an advantage. Mm. So if you're, you know, very outlandish and loud, but then you don't actually play too many poker hands. A lot of people don't really realize that because they're falling back on the stereotype of what you look like and what you sound like. So yeah, my dad actually has been really successful at this strategy because he's a really, really tight poker player. They used to call him Mike the chair. He didn't play a lot of hands. He was like a chair, but he's got a huge personality and like a really big voice. So even if you don't see him playing any hands, you're like, nah, he's, he's in there. I just wasn't paying attention, right? So it works out really well in poker to kind of contrast your style with your real personality. I wonder if that could also be applied to chess. Well, I think it can be applied from the point of view of releasing your aggression. If you're not super aggressive in your real life, it might just be super fun to play the most aggressive openings. Ho Fan has a nice quote about how she heard that people play chess that reflects their personality, but she didn't understand that because she thinks she's a pretty nice person. But when she plays chess, she doesn't think she's a nice person. Well put. What about your poker style, Jen? Do you feel like that matches your personality otherwise, or is it kind of a mismatch? Follow up. What is your personality? Oh, yeah. That's a good point. Yeah, I think I'm pretty nice. You know, I think so. <laughs> but, no, but then really, really not nice when I need to be. But no, for sure. I think it's with poker, there's a lot of psychology and money involved that doesn't really come into chess, right? Sure. Your psychology of money tends to be the primary driver of your initial style when you're starting to play. And then sometimes you try to like overcorrect that. So for a lot of people who aren't independently wealthy or, you know, super gambly, they'll, they'll start poker too tight. I'd say that's most chess players, actually. They start playing too tight, partly because if you play chess, you probably don't have that much money (laughs) unless you're independently wealthy or like a famous streamer. And then also chess is not very gambly. So if you come to poker from chess, you're probably not in it just like put all your chips in the pot and hope to get lucky. So like that means that most chess players tend to be a little nitty. And I I heard that's the stereotype on the tour, that the chess player who just got into poker, people will assume they maybe bluff a little bit less than usual. Good to know. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. Why are you thinking about getting into it? No, definitely not. I do not get anything out of gambling. I've just never been someone who really enjoyed it or got super into it. 
How did you get into it? It sounds like your dad played. Well, yeah, also my brother and and Ben Johnson became professionals during the poker room. But the reason that it interests me for this podcast is that in poker, this idea of like sports psychology and mindset has been really prominent for like maybe the last, I don't know, eight, 10 years. And it seems like only in the last three to four years has it permeated chess. We've only been doing this podcast for one year. (laughs) (laughs) One year. I was also thinking, you know, Magnus Carlson usually brings a mindset coach and, you know, other important figures in the chess world, like oh, sure. MVL, I think has a mindset coach. So they talk about their mindset coaches and their sports psychologists that they bring around. And that, yeah, that's been really widespread in poker for a little bit longer. I wanted to step back and talk about the idea of a mindset coach more generally. And I'm interested in part because, well, Jen, you probably have experience here and Julia, you know, you do something in a way. That's very similar as a therapist. Well, I think most adult chess lessons end up being partially mindset coaching. When I teach adults, I usually find that, that it's like half chess and then a little bit of psychology because oftentimes there are serious psychological roadblocks for grownups who are trying to improve. One thing I notice a lot is grownups are so good at managing their time in shortcuts that a lot of the times they're, they're looking for too many shortcuts. A lot of times it boils down to that. That's such a good point. And so you have to kind of unravel that and prove it to them. Do you still do a lot of teaching, Jen? Not that much, but, you know, I have a friend who wants a lesson to like evaluate. I'm so busy. It's hard for me to have like a lot of regular students, but I do like to have like evaluation sessions with people. So kind of steer them in the right direction, books, maybe the right coach, the right approach. I actually really enjoy it. I love talking to grownups about their chess trajectories and their hangups because I feel like with children, a lot of it is more technical because their minds are such sponges to soak up so much great information. But being able to kind of direct people in the right path is is quite interesting. Yeah. I had a couple lessons right before the pandemic with Grandmaster Elshin Moradi Abadi, and the evaluations he gave really transformed how I thought about chess. He said pretty simply, it looks like you don't pay enough attention to which pieces you're trading or when you trade them and what should stay on the board. And I didn't really understand what he meant by that. And a year or two later, I started to understand what he meant by that. And having that go from something that was completely off my radar to something internalized just from having somebody give this sort of evaluation was just so useful and impressive. Yeah, Elisha Marathi Abadi, he's, he's amazing. Big fan. He's just such a great guy. Like uh, I'm sure he has a similar ethos of Ho Yifan that uh, <laughs> I'm such a nice guy, but I'm not very nice on the chessboard. <laughs> Ooh, who are the nicest people on the chessboard? Oh, on? I guess people we wouldn't have heard of. Yeah, well, that, that's true. I think that, that should be more of a thing, though, that we should be more accepting of people who just like want to move the chess pieces around and enjoy themselves who don't really want to crush other people. I think they probably play a lot of puzzle rush and puzzles because they just want to enjoy chess and not necessarily crush people. I was thinking even at the top level, like there's the Kasparov Topalov game where Kasparov has that quote about how it always takes two players to play an immortal game. And at a certain point, it felt like Topalov decided to kind of go along with some of the complications and mayhem rather than try and shut them down. What would it mean to be nice on the board? Always accepts gambits would probably be the first thing on my list. <laughs> always accepts gambits. Yes. Always plays the open Sicilian. Yes. They can't play yeah. like C3 Sicilian. <laughs> Even though I've been known to do that, I think I got up <laughs> over 2000 using the C3 Sicilian, but that's not very nice. You can't just play Bishop B5 Jack or C3 when your opponent has like been preparing for the open Sicilian. It's rude. Uh, Thank you for saying that. No, what do you want for dinner? (laughs) (laughs) 
I wanted to ask also, you alluded to your teenage self being a more tactical, aggressive player, and you've said similar things in your books. Have you had the typical fall into maturity of seeing that change how you play chess or change your openings or change your approach? Are you still a uh, maniac on the chessboard? Well, you know, I don't really like study chess as seriously as I once did. So it's a little hard to say, but I do feel that probably all of those years looking at chess with Yasser. Yeah. yeah, I've definitely developed a little bit more of a positional insights, I think. Condolences. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 hard not to, right? Uh, the pains of growing up. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe while we're talking about chess as well, we had some listeners respond to our podcast tweet. I'm not sure by the time this comes out, if there'll still be Twitter. So Twitter was a social media platform at the time of recording. It was popular. Oh my God. What are we going to do? How are you feeling about the potential collapse of Twitter? That's actually what we should talk about. Yeah. Yes. That's the thing I want to know. Jen, what's coming up for you? I feel just like that part of my life feels like all those hours, like and all the friends that I met on Twitter and all the like-minded people, like... It feels like it's time to move on. I, I think I have a little bit more acceptance than many people because I, I there's been a lot of amazing things that have, have happened on chess Twitter. I mean, you really see the progressive community with like the chess punks and chess Twitter. Like we saw Ilya Shmirin get fired from his commentary role because he said sexist yeah. things. That was that was entirely because of chess Twitter. Like I don't think that would have happened if it wasn't for chess Twitter. I Absolutely. completely cool. agree. Yeah. And I, and that shows the world that's not acceptable. And I think that's awesome. So there's been a lot of really good things. But then you also have to weigh how much time people spend on it. That and then even before Elon Musk, the pernicious algorithm and the way that it steers certain types of opinions and comments. Sure. Um, that really distorts what's actually happening in the world and is very confusing. So I'm, I'm at peace with it because I was already feeling like kind of this equilibrium. Like I'm getting stuff from Twitter because I laugh. Like, especially at your tweets, Julia. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. <laughs> but there are also like bad things, like the, yeah. the fact that I get upset about the way that I worded something and it kind of haunts me because it's part of the public record. So for me, I felt like a bit of an equilibrium for Twitter. So I'm like, okay, let's see what happens next. Maybe I'll read some more books, listen to some more podcasts and kind of wait it out. That's a good thing for me right now. But I do feel... You, you know, you're, you have really strong engagement on Twitter, Julia. So for someone like you, I'm, I'd be like more worried because it seems like it's clearly a positive for you, isn't it? So it sucks that it's going away. Yeah, I kind of feel like you, I do feel a little torn. I mean, I haven't been on Twitter nearly as long as you or JJ, but my experience has definitely been overwhelmingly positive. I mean, I don't think I would have any relationship with the chess community if it wasn't for social media. I met JJ. I have this podcast. I actually feel so much gratitude. The people in my little circle, I love them so much. Like I like my little chess buddies. I definitely have experienced a lot of the negative sides of it too. But I think that the positive relationships that I've built and the positive interactions I've had just so vastly outweighed all the vitriol. And I, I mean, mostly I just like Twitter because I like my stupid jokes. And somehow I have this like little cult following who seems to like them too. So I really have enjoyed it. But I'll be curious to see what's next. I almost just can't imagine it totally going away and not being replaced by anything. Like nature abhors the vacuum, right? Yeah, I agree. It will be replaced by something. But I, I feel like I'm not going to be an early adopter. I'm just going to kind of like enjoy maybe a time where people use social media a little bit last. And it, it probably could be very painful for like some influencers and news media in the short term. But I'm hoping maybe yeah. by the end we we come out better for it. I mean, we, you know, I was obviously paranoid when Elon Musk bought Twitter right before the midterms. 
Right. That that turned out okay. So (laughs) the truth is, it's very hard to predict these things. You know, you can come up with a story about how something is to go. And a lot of times it's completely false. Like look at chess booming. Now, a lot of people said it was going to die when like Gary Kasparov lost to Deep Blue. And then when Stockfish and AI got progressively better at chess, people were like, well, now it really is going to die. No, keeps getting more popular. Like, yeah, no one could have predicted what Blitz could look like or what streaming could look like. And I know that none of those people foresaw duck chess. No one predicted that. (laughs) It's not what I thought you were going to (laughs) say. What about you, JJ? How do you feel about the potential demise of chess Twitter? Uh, For me personally, I mean, mixed because it's been so great meeting you, starting this podcast, connecting with people. I'm not sure I would be able to teach as much as I have been or make that one of my primary gigs if it wasn't for connections through Twitter. I don't mind spending a lot of time on Twitter because I don't mind wasting time, but I spend a lot of time getting mad at things I see and have had to really learn a lot of self-control and restraint, not responding to every stupid thing I see. And it's not like I hadn't seen stupid things before Twitter. It's just there's something about it coming from within the chess community that makes me feel like, especially as a dude-bodied person, I should probably try and do more speaking up than I ordinarily would if I just you know, saw some ignorant shit on a Facebook wall and I can just ignore it in peace. And I actually really appreciate that about you. I feel like I've even had to deal with some really unpleasant discourse online. And something I really respect about you, not just with me, but with other women in the community, I see your impulse, JJ, of it's so important. Like I follow back women who play chess and I'm happy to be that allyship and support. It can't just be coming from women. So I really see the value in centralizing those voices and creating that type of allyship online. Yeah. And I've had a lot of men who I teach reach out to me to say as well that like they'd started to think a lot more about what they could do in say their local chess club or something to be a vocal supporter of the, you know, two women who show up or something because of conversations or things that I had said or things that they'd seen me talk about. Um, and I obviously wish that I was doing more always too, but I do think about how many people seem to either be, you know, one of the only women in those spaces and then something like the Twitter community is a way to see that they're not as alone as they thought, or it's a way to kind of model that kind of actual allyship in a way that can affect change. And so I definitely worry about where some of that's going to go or what's going to happen to women who are getting into chess next year. Yeah, it's a big concern, but I think we'll figure it out. There is a need for it, whether it's Reddit or Discord or uh, Macedon or Instagram. I, I think it'll it will emerge. So I mean, the the, the community is there. Um, it just I am a little worried about those those dead months where people might not know where the party is. So you guys will tell people the destination of the party on this podcast. Julia, take the floor. (laughs) I already solved this problem. Jen, did you see chess sheets? Yes, I did. I saw that. I, you know, I tried to click on it and uh, (laughs) it said I had the request. I wanted to see how long it would last before someone did something annoying. It was exactly 11 minutes before (laughs) someone started spamming and copying just random messages into all of the cells. The rules clearly said you get one cell, no trading. So anyone doesn't know what I'm talking about, I did solve this problem. I figured out where the party is going. This was actually the idea of enemy of the pod, Aaron Dietz. (laughs) He said, why don't we just create a Google Doc, an Excel spreadsheet, Everyone gets one cell and you just write your little messages. You do your little bits. bits. So condescending. But I just woke up the next morning and said to myself, why does that have to be a joke? Let's bring it to life. So Jen, if you come on, I'll approve your request. Oh, nice. Let's do it. But you know, you know, Twitter might live also. I mean, he could sell it back. 
I totally agree. I mean, Elon seems like the guy who's aware, aware of the concept of sunk costs. So, you know, he could, he could be done with it. Sell it back. Lose like however many billions. I, I believe in him. Just a few exploding Teslas. <laughs> like, it's like, like, I need to get back to my life and it's okay that I lost 30 billion out of this or however many billions. I, I don't know. I'm not keeping track, but like, uh, yeah, I think it's definitely possible. There's so much at stake. I do think there's a, totally. it's possible. We'll see. We'll see when this episode airs what's going on. And Can't that's wait. a good point that you made too, that a lot of people have something real to lose. And I, I certainly don't feel that way. This is not my livelihood and I have an entire career and a lot of interests. Show off. Shockingly outside. <laughs> I don't know if that makes me a show off. I mean, I am a hundred times worse at chess than either of you will ever be. But I do imagine other people are feeling it, you know, not in a joking way, probably more deeply. But isn't it fun to get like hundreds of hearts for your tweet or do you feel like that's not really an addiction like it's kind of fun when you get it but when it disappears it'll just be like oh okay yeah that was cool but it's okay that it's not happening anymore as well yeah jj can back me up on this i can go on the record as having said my favorite tweets are the ones that get like 30 likes and 12 comments that's how i know it's just the homies once i actually get too popular it ends up being a lot of people kind of outside of my bubble whose opinions i don't find as funny or amusing or care about as much yeah my favorite tweets are like the ones that don't do as well they're always the best ones i swear i just get mad at people when they like my tweets or not like the individuals so much but i'm just like this was just like the dumbest thing my brain could come up with. And I was typing it so I could go back to like having thoughts like a normal functioning adult and you're liking this, like just get mad at them. Yeah. It's almost like it's very easy to figure out the algorithm. Mm. I can think of five things a day that I know could be really popular, but I don't find them funny. Ah, so what's the algorithm? It like, what's, what do you feel like? Yeah. Secrets. Why don't you what, oh, yeah, make your, a, uh, make good. your tweet formulas for us right now or tweet Ooh. Mad Libs? I mean, you can just sort of feel what is the cultural zeitgeist. So for example, once I wanted to troll JJ, mm -hmm. there was just a meme that was floating around and I just <laughs> thought about how I could literally apply to the London system and like dunk yeah. on it. Uh -huh. It's not a joke that I actually find particularly funny and neither does JJ. So to make it funny, what I did was I messaged JJ and I literally said with no context, Hey, can I tweet something from your account? Immediately, he responds, of course, and sends me his password. Um, so that was the enjoyable part of it to me. So I got to like have that tweet go semi-viral, but from JJ's account. So I had like the meta joke, and then JJ messaged me later that day and was like, okay, I have 80 new followers that I absolutely don't want. I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Once you Once you have enough tweets go viral, you kind of figure it out. But it's also like, I think something that a lot of people do struggle with and the fact that you can can grasp it naturally, it's like a lot of people can't grasp the zeitgeist. <laughs> like, oh, yeah, that's a good it's point. Difficult. You know, it's kind of hard for a lot of people to figure that out. I think that happens a lot. The, the things that we're good at, we um, assume are natural because they're natural yeah. to us. Yeah, that's a really good point. How do you kind of use it, Jen? What are the things that you like to kind of interact with and what kind of content do you like creating? Well, I'm pretty sporadic on Twitter, but I do like sometimes to, you know, get out a thought. And I obviously I like talking about my son on Twitter. Yeah. I feel like those tweets always do well. He's very tweetable. He always says like really funny things. And when I play in a poker tournament, it's nice to like update people via that. 
So I think that those things will be missed, but I'm also feeling like deep thinking is more important for me right now. Like I need to get that balance. Probably a lot of people do. And, you know, obviously like reading books and is really good for that. I've already like been spending a lot less time on it just because it's kind of boring now. People are just like, oh, this form is dying. It's like, yeah, (laughs) that's not very exciting content for the most part, right? No. Um, it was kind of cool last week, though, when the Democrats covered in the midterms. It was so awesome. Yeah. Years. I was- wasn't expecting it for some reason. I was feeling kind of pessimistic. So it was amazing. Yeah, me too. Me too. It's good to see like something nice happen in that sphere. Kind of surprising, but also really relieving at the same time. Yeah, I can say I've also really enjoyed seeing you as a voice that has been so politically proactive and really outspoken. I know that some people will say that they don't love that overlapping in their chess community, (laughs) but I think it's really important for a lot of reasons. Like it's been nice to see a lot of progressive voices in a space that doesn't always feel progressive. Oh, yeah. I mean, totally. I'm, you know, as a chess and a poker player and somebody who wants more women to play at both games, to me, it's like a lot of that is about, you know, empowering people to make their own decisions. And I think, you know, when stuff like abortion rights are restricted or, you know, demolished, I feel like there's a complete corollary to my passion for that. Because if we're talking about these symbolic decisions and chess or poker, but then in reality, people's decision-making power is stripped away. To me, it's very natural. It's not like, oh, I'm just kind of fitballing, right? It's really like core principles that yeah. are being attacked. So that's just me. And honestly, I feel like I don't really get a lot of blowback from it in, in the end, much less than you might expect, especially in a world like poker where it's very, yeah. even more than chess, because the male to female ratio is probably pretty similar in both worlds. Yeah. Remember that in poker, there's a lot of individualism and there's a lot of money. So I I would imagine it tends to lean a little bit more right politically. It's probably, it has a lot of people on the left as well. It's, but I'd say it's probably a little bit more of a mix in chess. I think chess leans a tiny bit more progressive, but I wore my like pro abortion pin every single day and almost nobody said anything to me. I mean, I'm sure people had thoughts, but mostly they were scared of me. So it's also (laughs) fascinating how people will not say the types of things that they'll say online to your face. If they're Mm -hmm. actually in person, they do not have the screen between them to speak in these ways that are so derogatory that you would never imagine saying to another person when you're face to face. It always blows my mind what people feel emboldened to do online. Exactly. And it's it's terrible. And, you know, luckily, this has gotten a bit better on certain forums like YouTube and Twitch, which has really enabled there to be so many like female stars and leaders, which is fantastic. Like the Botas sisters and Anna Rudolph and all of these great female icons in the space. I think that in an early interview with with Alexander Botas, actually, she, she spoke about that, about one of her early streams at Stanford. There was so much BS that it was demoralizing, but that moderation just got better. She got some good moderators and she, with no tolerance policy, they just were able to clean it all up. And, you know, obviously her brand grew stratospherically since then. So yeah, there was a correlation there. Like if that wasn't there, right? you know, who knows, she might've just given it up and done something else. So exactly. Yeah. I remember early streams that I did where people were just so nasty. Yeah, I was like, wow. at the beginning, I guess the ethos, the zeitgeist, as you said earlier, was yeah. kind of like, 
don't let the trolls win by replying or really caring that much about them, which, you know, I, I guess I internalized for a little while, but obviously in retrospect, that was completely wrong. You can't have all this garbage up there about mm-hmm. like women's looks and, you know, women being stupid. It's completely unacceptable because it draws certain types of people who are going to say the same things. So the way I was looking at it, was completely wrong and I should have been even more um, angry about it probably. Yeah. <laughs> but now, but at the time I was like, okay, like Jen shouldn't be in the stream with Yasser and Maurice. She should get hit with a baseball bat. I was like, oh, it's troll. Isn't okay. there a third option? <laughs> <laughs> I really think there is something to this idea. And this even relates back to like why I think Twitter can be a really positive, powerful <laughs> force of actually not totally ignoring those voices. Even if they are the minority, they can often be really loud and they can get a lot of momentum. So I think that the fact that people are willing to talk about it and draw attention is very unpleasant and frankly, vulnerable and anxiety provoking thing. Whenever I make a post about something like this, I feel so much trepidation and true dread. It's not a conversation that I want to have, but I think it's important. It sends at least some signal that this is not okay. And it allows other voices to say, wait, I can't even believe that this is happening. I think some people are really surprised. They've never even seen this because they've never had to. They've never experienced it. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's hard. Also, I mean, I don't have a lot of separation from my work and my life in many ways. Like I've always, you know, when you're, I guess, a content creator and a commentator and an author, I think that a lot of what happens to me in my life, I kind of use in my work in some ways. So to me, the boundaries aren't really that clear. So I can kind of understand why some people feel that way. Um, But for me, it's just completely natural to give my opinions on my personal channels side by side with observations about chess or poker It's so normal. I mean, shout out to Grandmaster Hikaru Nakamura, by the way, because he was playing in the candidates tournament when Roe vs. Wade was overturned and he immediately changed his fundraiser to abortion rights. Yeah. And that was so cool because, well, he raised money for abortion rights, but also he definitely lost some followers from that or subscribers. And, you know, take some real, take some real courage when you, when you have a following that large, right? I completely agree. Okay, Hikaru won my respect in so many ways, actually, in candidates, which I was not expecting, talking about things not going the way you think. And I totally agree with that. I have so much admiration for that. That's hard to do. Certainly, there are some that, you know, had to grapple with the fact that Hikaru felt this way and maybe it caused them to think about their own, the issues. Because especially because he has a very young audience, right? Mm. Yeah. So some of their opinions maybe aren't fully formed yet. Maybe some of them are just inherited from their parents. So yeah, I, I thought it was a really cool thing to do and a nice show of support. I think also on this topic, even this idea when people talk about, you know, you should keep politics out of my hobby or something, just this question of like, when does something become politics is such a tricky question because the way that phrase is often used is to mean a political issue isn't literally something in the political sphere. It's something divisive. Like my favorite example for this is the people who criticize Colin Kaepernick for taking a knee during the national anthem because he was making it political. And what they mean is they didn't like it or they thought it was controversial because I imagine playing the national anthem as the military comes out during a sporting event is also political. political. It's just not a political statement you have a problem with or is one that you think no one should have a problem with. And so similarly, this idea of when does this even become separate? And this is something too, as we think about creating or maintaining social spaces, there's this temptation to be like, hey, I just want a space that's positive, but without any sort of reflection 
on what that will mean? Or does that just mean we will keep things positive, don't discuss politics? And it's like, oh, okay, so does that mean that like, if I talk about my gender identity, does that mean I'm discussing politics? Or is it only the people who say something in response to it? And where that line is drawn is a very difficult thing. Yeah, exactly. Some people have to think about it. And the fact that you are even able to say, I want to totally distinguish these things reflects the place of privilege that comes from that you don't feel affected by any of these issues or oppressed in any of these ways. And also it is a privilege though to speak up sometimes. Like to me it's not an accident that obviously the Hollywood stars were, you know, the trailblazers of the Me Too movement and like bringing down Harvey Weinstein even though Me Too the, the original hashtag was created by a black woman. Um, A lot of this came to the mainstream and like the trials by wealthy white Hollywood actresses, right? And why is that? Because, you know, they're so rich. They have time to like pursue these battles that are often like really emotionally draining and thankless. Also, the way those messages are received are so Mm. different when they're coming from people who are of a certain class or who are white. That's a fact. Yeah. And so it's not always doable for people who don't have the privilege to like take time off their work and, you know, hire a lawyer, all that, all those types of things. And so, you know, that's one thing I've realized in my life. I've always pursued multiple income streams. And, you know, people do talk a lot about like, fuck you money. And I, I think like, wow, I have yet to accumulate that. Yeah. I do think that one of the reasons I, you know, do all these different things and it only became clear to me lately is that if something happens and I need to like, do something different than I have all these things that I'm already doing. So I can kind of like raise the temperature on different ones. I have that freedom, right? And in particular, poker is great yeah. for that. If you have poker skill at any time, you know, you can find a way to make some money, both through the play of it and also through the promotion of it. And there are certainly some negative CD parts to the poker world, but that is like a huge benefit to um, having learned that in my like, uh, having learned to get good at poker and understand the game in my like 30s, I felt like uh, that gives you a little bit of freedom that is priceless, really. Just to, to know that you have something else you can do if you if you need to. It's really nice. And I've always done like a million different things. Like, you know, you mentioned in the, the bio, like author, yeah. podcasting, poker, chess, and, you know, obviously empowering girls and women through chess. And I think that uh, sometimes it's a little crazy how many things I do. But that that is definitely an underrated benefit of having like a lot of things going on. Well, I had a joke from earlier that I needed on record, which Ooh. is um, just it's not great. But just at the beginning, Julia was asking Jennifer, like, if you didn't have the job in chess and poker that you did, what would you do? And it sounds like the answer is, well, everything else she already does. <laughs> yeah. What are some of the things you do that most people might not know about? Or what are some things that you're especially excited about? Well, I think most people who follow me probably are aware of a lot of the things that I do, but I'm really excited about some of the work that I'm doing in poker to get more women into the game because recently I've been more aware of class and how the ability to have capital from like your family and your like your friend network is like so um, integral to success and that a lot of times it's invisible. And, you know, that is, I guess that's just like a lens that I had not been looking at sufficiently in my work, I think. Like I've always been looking at gender and race, but also class, I think, is something that had been eye-opening to me. And I think that in poker, it's something you really see very clearly that, you know, all of the top 
people who are playing high rollers are white men these days. The large majority of them are. Yeah. And they have access to capital, either because people invest in them or because they just have it. And that obviously is like a metaphor for, for life and why there's so few female CEOs, why there's so few people who invest in women in the same way that they would like invest in SBF, right? And it's like kind of also probably one of the reasons that I've changed my mind on equal prize funds for women and open events, because originally I was like, well, women can qualify for the open event. So would it create a perverse incentive for them to like have exactly the same prize fund in the women's event? Because like, why would you want to play in the open event if you can have a weaker field because there are fewer women in chess? So maybe that's a wrong incentive system. But now I really think of it very differently that you're just giving people compensation for their time and that, you know, chess is a very difficult spear for women. So like, it really makes sense to just like equalize that. So yeah, that's some of the work that I'm doing. I work with an organization called Poker Power about that. And also Poker Stars does some work in it, but just, just like also mentally just kind of thinking about that, about how poker is a metaphor for the kind of class inequities that we often don't look at. When I ask somebody about what is the number one skill for a great poker player? A lot of times they'll say like, you know, concentration or patience or bravery. And I say like, no, it's not none of that. It's definitely having money. That's like the number one thing. Yeah. (laughs) Have money. And like, unfortunately, that's true. Unfortunately, that is true in like almost everything. It's probably true in chess too. It's a problem. And well, we do have a lot of great nonprofits, like the one that JJ and I work for, US Chess, but also some that are like particularly targeted to getting children into the game, like Chess in the Schools, so many all across the country, Berkeley Chess School, like ASAP in my neck of the woods in Philly. There's a lot of really good ones, but there's usually a drop off point, like high school, college, grown ups. There's no support for people who don't already have money to pursue their chess education and play in tournaments. Yeah, I was just thinking from the context of chess, because especially some of the funding that exists for chess juniors is really going to be geared towards top junior players. But a lot of the people who are getting to that point in their young careers would probably skew towards folks who have had the privilege to be able to afford the private coaching to get to all the national tournaments and stuff. So I just wondered what else we can do or are doing that our listeners might not know about for for the kids and the class dimension in chess too. Yeah. You know, there are, like I said, there are those, all those organizations that bring chess into the schools and therefore like that really helps. And that's why actually when you go to a lot of kids tournaments, you see an incredible amount of diversity, especially like I'd say from like third grade to like eighth grade or third Mm. grade to sixth grade, I think is the sweet spot because that's where a lot of the funding is. If you look at something like kindergarten or ninth grade, you're going to see some of it disappear because, you know, kindergartens are usually taken by their parents, not their schools. And like in high school, a lot of the chess program funding drops off because people think that chess is most beneficial educationally and like elementary school. I think there's some research and also it's probably easier to get the kids to sign up at that age. So logistically, you're probably just reaching more people. So yeah, I think that generally we should be looking a little bit more at those bridges, like high school and college, especially high school, because chess can help you get into good colleges and like, you know, to, to meet the types of people that might give you recommendations or jobs later in life. So I think uh, that kind of international network aspect of the game, it could be like um, highlighted more. For sure. And then also maybe focusing a little bit more on individuals. It's like much more logistically difficult. That's why a lot of times when we want to fund chess to underserved communities, obviously we're going to look at schools 
Because that's how you can get the most bang for your buck, right? I mean, like, it's the most logical. But then if a child who could get a lot out of chess doesn't go to one of those schools, they're left out. So maybe some kind of mechanism to pick those kids who don't go to a school that has the wisdom to have a chess program in it and to, like, seek out some of the funding that's available. Yeah, that's beautiful. What a great description. Well, yeah, I think the reason I love chess and poker is because there are these systems that kind of connect to all these other things, but that allow for a very diverse population to enjoy them, right? And and different types of brains too. So I, I, I feel like I'd probably gravitate towards something similar. Like I love writing and I grew later in my life to like math. I didn't really like it that much in high school or college, but you know, via poker, I started to really appreciate some math more. And I think probably one of those things and like similar type of work that I'm doing in chess, which is like outreach and like maybe teaching and writing. I think I'd probably do more of those things. Yeah. I know you also mentioned that you like to read a lot. What kind of books do you like? I like nonfiction for sure, but I'm always up for, for fiction as well. I'm, the last book I read was this great book. Oh, let me. It was by Lisa Tadeo called Women. That was really good. And then I also read an old book, but this is for research. And it, boy, does it date well. It's about memory, moonwalking with Einstein. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've actually read that one. It's 12 years old, so I thought it would be more dated in some ways because I'm friends with a world memory champion, and she was really inspired by that book. Her name is Yenja, and uh, it's one of her favorite books, but all the records are outdated. So there's stuff in there like, you know, the world record is like, <laughs> to memorize 75,000 digits of pi. So (laughs) I'm horrified to think that that record has been broken. But apparently, she says every record in that book mentioned in that book has long been broken. But it's interesting memory in chess, obviously, like with Chessable, they've done a lot of work with spaced repetition. But my memory champion friend talks so much about creative memory which I'm super interested in. And even though I haven't really taken the plunge to memorize something amazing, I am like kind of working on that muscle a little bit. I ask what creative memory is. Like just trying to make random associations by things, you know, like so that you can remember them better. What like, cause, cause okay, now that I'm a, a mom and my kid goes to kindergarten, you have this thing where you actually like have to yeah. memorize three names at once, like two parents and one child. It's so difficult. So I'm trying to use these like memory techniques on on the parents and the kids. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, and and you're supposed to just do like really outlandish stuff, you know? Like I, I'm trying to I'm trying to think of one. I try to do, but like if you have like a the mom being Tara, and you have the kid being um, Jasmine, you think of like you know a Disney princess and like Tar. You know, like you have to think of something that just like a bizarre image in your head. Right. And then you remember it. Is the more bizarre, the better. Like that's better than a Disney princess and a tiara. This would be better because it's tar. And so it's more outlandish. Yeah. You know, I didn't even think of that. That's probably good, too. But you yeah, that's probably really good, too. Oh, my God. It would never occur to me to do that. That's really cool, though. And that's like baby steps because, you know, like, why not try to remember people's names and their kids' names? It's like if I'm trying to re- memorize the entire deck of cards in order, like, <laughs> I should I should at least start with like, remembering three names. It's yeah, not yeah, that hard. Yeah. Oh, Although, you know, so it's, it's like a typical trick of like charismatic politicians to try to just to just use people's yeah, first name I a lot because that. apparently it's the most beautiful word in the language to you, your first name. 
So I saw this actually, I was watching Pence's interview on CNN, like his tell-all interview about January 6th, you know, where he, you know, he comes out against, oh, against wow. Donald Trump yeah. and says, you know, this Donald Trump basically put our nation at risk on January 6th. He's like obsessively, every few words, he's mentioning the interviewer's name. I wonder if there's diminishing returns to the point where if you do it too much, <laughs> mm. it's kind of like eye contact. Exactly. I think if you do it to the point where somebody really notices. Yeah. I, I have this opposite problem. You know how everyone says, oh, I'm really good with faces, but I'm bad with names. Like, I remember your face, but not your name. I'm weirdly good with names. I really remember people's names, but I'm really bad with faces. I can't recognize their face. So I remember once in college, I was at some social thing and I told someone like, oh, I remember your name, but not your face. And they were like, what? That's great. I remember your name, but not your face. That's a good line. Yeah. That's something I feel like you could use for a lot of the people that you you meet someone and then they tell you their Twitter handle or something. Oh, that's so funny. Yeah, that's actually such a good point. It like totally works online. I'm in the right space. I'm just over here scheming the first chessable course run entirely on creative memory techniques. I don't know what that would look like, oh. but instead of just explanations of the position, it's just like little outlandish clues to help you remember each position. Yeah, I feel like creative memory in chess, I mean, maybe there's a lot embedded in the chess already that doesn't, it doesn't seem like it's quite as relevant. because The chess was, speaks maybe, for itself, maybe. Yeah, the chess speaks for itself. I mean, I'm trying to, re I'm trying to think about this. <laughs> Like, why would you need, what would you need creative memory techniques for in chess? Like, what are you trying to remember that you can't remember that you would need to create a story for? I think maybe songs. Rookin' games. Rookin' games, yeah. Maybe you're right. Maybe something like Rookin'. Like, I actually did try to memorize when I was, and I think I successfully did. There was a chess endgame book that was just like 100 positions. And the idea was that you should try to, to memorize all of them as like building blocks. So I did do that at some point. But I didn't use any creative memory techniques. Because I think the point is when you're a good chess player, it's almost like that feels to me like the memory, creative memory is embedded because you're telling a story about the moves as they're happening, right? Mm. So maybe there's just that point where you have to tell the story in a more vivid fashion. Oh, maybe creative memory would be useful for trying to like memorize other people's games because there you actually have to be telling the story. It can be a lot easier like if you have the story of like, oh, this was the game with the rook takes c3 sacrifice that blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But their game doesn't have it like built in semantic meaning. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a good test task though. Yeah. Like it's a pretty <laughs> cool party trick. Like how cool is it to just be able to like, I remember Benko um, RIP did this at the, these. RIP. Um, World Youth Championships, he would just like, you know, put a chess position, a beautiful maiden two, like two seconds later, move one pawn and it would be like another maiden two, and then, like, <laughs> add a knight and now it's a maiden three. It was pretty awesome. I mean, that's like a really cool party track. I love that. It's like social capital, but <laughs> yeah. not chess prowess. I mean, don't you want to be fun at parties? No. Fun at parties. <laughs> chess has gotten so popular that fun in parties include just breaking out a chessboard and showing them this evade reposition and then like flipping it. I I did go to a party the other night and I wore my uh, my sequin jean jacket with the ready position on the back. Oh my God, that's awesome. I did. I did. Was this a chess party? No, it wasn't a chess party. Until you walked in. Yeah, it was actually a Eurovision like oh, disco yeah. party or something. So I was also wearing a silver sequin oh, jumpsuit cool. at the same time. Everybody wanted to know about the chess position. And they wanted me to set it up. Amazing. They wanted me to tell them the answer. I need more friends like that. No, none of my friends will entertain me at all. If I even breathe the word <sighs> chess, everyone like oh, no. collectively groans. They're not your friends. Yeah, it's really depressing.
But wait a second, this this group of friends that y'all don't like chess, have they ever watched the hit Netflix series, The Queen? <laughs> that was the only time, I swear, when people would ask me any questions. Okay, I have such a funny anecdote about this. I was actually with a group of friends and it was a holiday party, so nothing to do with chess. And then chess came up. Someone was talking over Julia plays chess and she likes to play speed chess. It's kind of cool. And I was ready for everyone to be like, oh, okay, don't don't get her started. And instead, one of my friends in grad school was like, oh, uh, do, you, do you play the Sicilian? And I was like, yeah, I do play the Sicilian. And I got so excited. And then she goes, no, 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 Julia, slow down. I don't know what the Sicilian is. I just watched Queen's Gambit. <laughs> it's the only thing I remember from the show. I'm sorry. I have no idea what this is. And I got so deflated instantly, but I had that moment of excitement. Like someone asked me what opening I play. And of course, I do play. Of the course, Sicilian. you must play the Sicilian. That's the best opening. What do you play as what? Well, come on. Obviously, I play the Sicilian. That's, that's the hottest chess opening. Were you a Is dragon it? player at one point? Is this a fact about you or am I making that up? Yeah, I did. I did. I I had to kind of diversify at some point because, you know, the dragon's like a straight shot. They can yeah. like. They can, they can prepare for it, but I love the dragon. I still remember I the moment that. I was studying the Yugoslav attack of the dragon. Before that, I was playing E5, right? So I guess, you know, before I really saw the light, I was playing double king pawn and before you saw the Yugoslav variation, and there was this move rook C5, which did everything. It was like an attacking move because I was trying to play B5. I was guarding the D5 square because I'd probably just sack my rook if you try to stick a knight there. It was just such a poetic move. Like, it just felt like it reached everything at once. And I was like, okay, no more E5. I got to play the Sicilian. And yeah, I never really looked back. Oh, that's amazing. I did dabble with the con and the Night Orf, of course, and the Accelerated Dragon. So you kind of have to, you kind of have to shift around a little bit, especially if you're playing in tournaments where people will prepare for you. But yeah, it would just be such a cool conversation to have with you specifically, Jennifer, because I feel like the dragon yes. gets a little bit of hate online. But JJ hit me with the most beautiful, eloquent argument for why the dragon is actually a uh-huh. positional opening or can be. <laughs> JJ Lang, take it away. It's a kind of like a game theory argument, which I hit saying, but I don't really know what that means. But this is what someone told me it was. <laughs> but pretty simply, okay, nobody is going to play the dragon in the year 2022, the year of our Lord and Savior, Anishgiri Unchessable, if they haven't like studied all the variations, right? No idiot is just going to play the dragon. So when someone plays the dragon, they're booked up. So if you want to play the Yugoslav against the dragon, you need to be booked up as well. But why would you spend so much time booking up against the dragon if you think that like this person's probably going to be prepped while also they play in the dragon? So White probably just won't play the Yugoslav attack, so you don't have to really prepare for it. So you can just play the non-theoretical lines where Black just gets a perfectly pleasant endgame after a queen trade. Yeah, great point. Or like they just don't do anything aggressive and you just have the C file yeah. and you don't. Yeah. I remember that was something Yasser Sarawad once told me about the Sicilian. He was like, yeah, you're just, you know, you're, you're better here. You have the C file. That's it. Like, you know... You- That's literally how I think about the Sicilian. I've never felt more validated in my entire life. All of my imposter syndrome just instantly evaporated. Julia, can you make a meme that's like, men only want one thing and it's fucking disgusting? (laughs) And it's definitely going to be Yasser's face somewhere on there. (laughs) Yeah, I love that. Yes. Yes. Although for those of you who are playing white, don't forget that you probably should just play the Yugoslav even if you haven't prepared. 
Because, I mean, it's not cool. It's not that hard, is it? Sack, mate. Don't chicken sack, out. Sack, just mate. go for it. Don't let... Don't let us just have the open C file. You know, you got to go for that, that G4, H4, H5. Just try. <laughs> See what happens. It'll be fun. <laughs> yeah, we like a little resistance. It's more fun when they fight back. I hope you don't regret having come on this show at this point. No, it was fun. Great time. Yeah. And of course, we had to ask the one question. Um, joke answers only. So is there sexism in chess? <laughs> no, I think we solved it, actually. In this chess- episode? Well, no, I mean, chess Twitter solved it. But the problem is that if Twitter goes down, we're gonna, it's going to come up again. So, mm. you know, we got to keep our eye open. But for now, it's, it's over. It's done. Elon Musk, we're counting on you. Oh, no, he doesn't like chess. Well, he likes sexism. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I was going to make that joke. Before it was on it. the tip of my <laughs> tongue. Well, chess is too simple for Elon. So maybe we can come up with a more convoluted game to... Well, we have video games now. He's like, why do people still play chess when we have video games? It reminded me a lot of SBF's comment, actually, where he said, why do people read books when we have, like, Reddit? Like, that's a really good question. It kind of follows the same form of, like, Elon's point. Like, well, here's another one. Why do people play E5 when we have the Sicilian? But that one's real. That one's like... <laughs> oh, sorry. I didn't, I didn't understand the assignment. <laughs> The others, come on, for those who are listening, no, the other ones are like a joke, but the, the Sicilian one is real. All right, Team Sicilian. I've never felt closer <laughs> to two other people in my life. And the other, what, million people who play the Sicilian, but we're different. Yeah, just us. Yeah, not them, not them. Just these, just these positional dragon girls. Yeah, I'm different. I usually don't protect the D5 square. It's not on purpose. <laughs> As always, thank you for letting us take you into this deep, dark forest. Where 2 plus 2 equals 5, and the path leading out is only wide enough for listeners like you. Intro and outro music provided by JPEG Mafia. We would be truly touched if you subscribe and leave us a glowing review. And tell all of your friends. (laughs) Yeah, all of them. And every week, we'll be gifting one lucky subscriber who leaves a 5-star review a lifetime premium diamond membership to leechess.org. Unlocking all of their features. Even that? especially that and don't forget to follow us on twitter at chess feels pod oh and if you didn't like what you heard do not hesitate to message any feedback no matter how critical or scathing directly to mr dodgy our social media manager even though he doesn't know it at (laughs) chess problem one yeah